Well, hello there, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is my second attempt at the intro. Um, we went through it before and then Joe pointed out that we hadn't pressed the go live button. So we're doing it again. I, of course, am Trevor, aka the Iron Fist. With me, as always, is Shay the Subversive. How are you, Shay? Very well, thanks. Hello, everybody. And Joe the Tech Guy. Evening all. He's holding us together with the tech. If you're in the chat room, if you're joining us, uh, say hello. We'll try and incorporate your comments as we go through the news, the politics, the sex and religion that's happened in the last two weeks since we last met with you. And, um, oh, look, language warning early on. I think I won't be able to help myself at some point during this one. I'm going to have a little bit of a monologue, which I haven't warned you guys about, and uh, it could well be that I, I launch into some uh, naughty words. So if you've got any kids nearby, um, maybe you should vet this episode beforehand. So we're going to talk about a few different topics. We've got uh, the Grace Tame saga. We've got various religious nutters from the Centrepoint School to our own Prime Minister doing their normal religious nuttery. Um, private schools, are they good or bad in terms of performance? A couple of COVID things. Aboriginal flag, flight attendants pay, property prices, of course, Venezuela. Uh, and, of course, Ukraine. Ukraine will be at the end. So Ukraine one's an interesting one because obviously I sort of thought that's a good one to talk about. And it took a lot of digging and a lot of effort to find the alternative viewpoint on what's happening in the Ukraine. So um, so hang around for that one. That'll be at the end. And um, uh, hello to Jack H, Bronwyn, Craig B, um, everyone else on the uh, – Oh, everyone else in the chat room, which isn't displaying for some reason, and Joe's going to work out why. I don't know why that's not displaying, Joe, but um, um, anyway, Joe will work out on that, and Tom the Warehouse Guy. Look, all those things, Grace Tame, religious nutters, private schools, property prices, like, it's all a little bit of a distraction It's to me. These are all sort of minor issues in the scheme of things to some extent, from the really big things that we just never talk about often enough. So I want to go on a little bit of a monologue, so bear with me on this one, um, that we need to, to look at the big picture occasionally and ask ourselves, are there systemic problems and what is being done about it uh, in relation to Australia? Until now, good luck has papered over a host of problems. Being a small population on a large landmass full of natural resources, we in Australia have evolved into a complacent society of dullards. We have allowed miners to buy our resources on the cheap, boomers to steal from the younger generations, and multinationals to raid our economy like bandits. We've allowed Murdoch to poison our traditional information sources and with it our democracy. We could have chosen Scandinavian-style socialism, but we have meekly adopted American neoliberal culture delivered by an incompetent Christian Taliban whose first priority is to enrich themselves and their mates and then secondly to impose a Bronze Age morality on the rest of us. I mean, these are the big things that are happening to us. We've got an economy based on holes and houses, but the stuff in the holes will run out. And in the meantime, much of it is poisoning our planet. Our self-inflicted housing bubble is crippling our economy. Those of us with property 
selfishly counted our winnings and congratulated ourselves on our hard work and smart investment strategy without pausing to question whether a property boom might be bad for our society. See, what happens is our labour is going to be uncompetitive in world markets because our labour needs higher wages to pay for the basic shelter that the labour needs. So we're just going to be uncompetitive with the rest of the world simply because of shelter costs. Popping this property bubble is going to cause enormous pain and sustaining the bubble will cause even more pain. We've got to find an alternative to digging holes. And the question is, can services and tourism fill the void? Probably not. For replacing that resource income and for regaining some sort of security, I think we need to develop a capacity to make things. Top-end, expensive, complicated things for sure, but probably also regular everyday things. We need an economy that would survive a war or a major breakdown in world trade. And we've seen that with the pandemic, where at one point it looked like we needed a lot of respirators. Did we actually have the capacity to make a respirator? Australia needs to grow up and become a responsible adult that prepares for disasters. We are the spoilt brats of the world, immature, selfish, source, immature, selfish, short-sighted, narrow-minded, uneducated teenage louts who've been isolated from harsh realities, but they're coming our way. We owe it to future generations to stop wasting our adolescence. And like an inexperienced adolescent, we have fallen in love with the braggart sports jock who seems beloved by everybody, but he is actually an abusive bully that many are wary of. Our friends look on with bemusement as we insist on being the first to suck the cock of the USA. Our friends know there is no point in talking us out of it. We must learn the hard way. We need to educate ourselves about where we are and how we got here. We need to decide what we realistically want to be in 100 years. In doing that, we need to understand human nature, human societies, and how power works. We have to look around at what others are doing, but also consider what might be ideally possible that no one else has tried. Once we understand how the world works and how it could work differently, only then can we set worthwhile goals and plans to fulfil those goals. So can we be the first society that learns from other people's mistakes without having to make the same mistakes ourselves? I don't know, but for the sake of our descendants, we must try. There you go. There's a little rant just to put some seriousness and, and these are the big picture things that just never get talked about at all. And um, uh, comments or shall we just now head into the distractions before we get into the bigger ideas? Keep going. I guess I just wanted to say, here, here. Mm, yes. Agree. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's run through a few distractions. Um, and yeah, part of it is these things are easy to have an opinion of without thinking too hard. Grace Tane, was she rude to the Prime Minister? Is it rude in that situation to pull a nasty face at the Prime Minister? And we can all have an opinion and we don't really need to have researched or thought about it too hard. We didn't need to activate our system two thinking, as Kahneman would talk, refer to. Just blurt out an opinion and we'll... So we've blurted endlessly, really, about it. Mm. Um, 
that's not to say we're not going to blurt about it about a bit more now. So, Shay, you kick off. I mean, not to belittle the whole situation, as I probably have with that whole intro, but but let's go through it. What did you think of the whole Grace team saga? Yeah, I think um, I think you make a fair point about the noise. Like, you just get bombarded by this story, don't you, until... Mm. Even though you're for everything that Grace Tame is standing for, you just don't want to look at it anymore. Yeah. I remember having a similar experience when um, Scott Morrison went on holiday yep. to Hawaii. After a while, I was just like, it's so needlessly noisy. We're not talking about, you know, the resources and the practicalities and climate change and, yeah. Yeah. So, but that aside, I thought of a few things. So the first thing was is that I, I – I made it, made it like silent commitment after I was watching Grace Tame, you know. Um, I watched her thing on the Australian story after I saw this because I hadn't seen it yet. And um, in it she says, if I don't speak truth to power every opportunity I get, then I'm a hypocrite. So that's exactly what she was doing. I went back over some of the videos and it seems to me that he kind of like beckoned her over. Mm, he did. Yeah. So photo op. This is what he's about. Live live by the photo op. (laughs) Die by the photo op. So yeah. So she upheld her personal integrity, which is that she was speaking truth to power. She wasn't gonna stand there and smile for him. Mm. Um and and certainly as I was watching her, I was thinking about all the times I'd smiled when I'd been told to smile, all the times I'd had like rude interactions with blokes. I even recalled in 2019 I'd been at a charity fundraiser for the bushfire victims and Mm. um, I was talking to Senator Jordan, who's the Greens senator in the wheelchair, Mm -hmm. and Kim Beasley, the governor of Australia, Western Australia, was there and he just like walked up and then just stood right in front of me (laughs) and started talking to Kim Beasley. Kim Beasley. (laughs) Yes, just just started talking to Senator Jordan. It's right. like, oh, g'day, you know, Senator Jordan and stuff, as though I was not there. Wow. And Senator Jordan came over to me later and just apologised on his behalf and said, you know, that's sort of yep. culturally what happens in political circles and I'm sorry yeah. it happened. And for yeah. me, I was like, I'm never going to let that happen again. If a bloke yep. stands in front of me in a group, I yep. am going to tap them on the shoulder. Yeah. And it's actually happened to me twice since and I still did the same thing. I just... Yeah, find a new, new group to go and talk to. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to in the moment. There's often things <laughs> really in social hard. because we are you've got your own social considerations. You know, when you don't yep. want to be made a fool of, and maybe you're overreacting, and like yep. so much goes on in your brain, so you just kind of sidle off. You know, you've been indoctrinated to be civil, and and. <laughs> And you wouldn't want to make a sort of an outburst in case you had somehow misinterpreted something. So it is difficult. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It is difficult. Particularly in, you know, people with powerful positions. Hmm. So I was I was really proud of her. Yeah. yeah. And one of the other things I've uh, I made a promise to myself that from now on, I think I'm just gonna leave the criticizing of women to men. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That was like my little personal solution going forward for yeah. for for this. Yeah. Because but, certainly it's been loud, all of yeah. the criticism about it. And this yeah. could be a issue we could all collectively 
gain from, I think. Mm. We could stop child sexual abuse. That's a win for everybody, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he would have thought, though, I'll beckon her over. She'll have to stand beside me. She'll have to smile. And there'll be a photo where it looks like Grace and I have patched up and all's good. Like, he would have Mm. thought that. It may not have rolled it all through his head at that moment, but he would have been thinking, here's an opportunity. And, uh, yeah, didn't pan out that way. So, um, of course, very hypocritical, um, uh, the whole thing, because there's other circumstances. You know, of course, you read in the Murdoch papers, uh, different uh, columnists and opinion writers saying how rude it was. And meanwhile, Scott Morrison has just been equally as rude to other people. There's been photos of him refusing to shake the hand of of um, Bill Shorten, other times in Parliament where he's had his back turned to uh, Tanya Plibersek, a whole host of times when he's just been a rude, arrogant pig. Um, oh, you mean like when he um, yeah. pra- preys on people? Right. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, um, uh, so yeah. Uh, you know, hypocritical, of course, and uh, good on Grace Tame. Um, we'll see what happens. Interesting. Um, one other comment I saw, this was from Mike Carlton. Um, he saw an ABC News headline, which was, uh, I wonder if I put this up. No, I didn't have it in the thing. Um, so ABC News, Grace Tame criticised for political and childish interaction with Prime Minister, ABC News. Um, so that's just repeating one one side of the viewpoint, and they mm. could equally have written Grace Tame applauded for honest refusal to play nice with Prime Minister, but the ABC chose to to repeat the News Corp line, if you like. Um, mm. I, I increasingly find the ABC quite disappointing in how it's approaching things well, like... But, but they're left-wingers, you know. They're always against the government, aren't they? No. Um, no they in, particularly in relation to China, I often see them just accepting the, the, uh, um, the anti-China rhetoric and probably in relation to Ukraine, if I see enough about it now, I'll see the same thing. Um, yeah. ABC um, could be better, but, um, yeah. Um, in the chat room, everyone's going off already, and um, uh, Rolman says, I spent time arguing with my sister via text about Grace Tame. She thought that Miss Tame was rude and hadn't done her cause any good. Um, Rolman said she was entitled to behave that way, given the government had ignored her, which they did. Like, they, they created mm. some sort of inquiry or body about the very topic that Grace Tame is famous for and didn't invite her input into it at all. Yeah. She found out about it from reporters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, it'll be interesting to see how Dylan, the wheelchair athlete, goes because will he will see things happening with National Disability Scheme that he won't be impressed with. That's right. And then the lead's been shown by Grace as to yes. what to do. That's um, right. She, just, I think she's furthered the cause, frankly. Yeah. I think um, he strikes me as the sort of character who probably might say something. So I don't think the coast is clear for the, for the government um, no. when it comes to Dylan. Yeah. But um, I read an interesting tweet that I took a photo of Mm-hmm. Just in terms of comparisons about women's conduct. Yes. 
So where is he? Darren Chester, Nationals MP. So humble, so respectful and so determined. That's leadership and she doesn't even know it. Good luck in the final, Ash Barty, but you're already a winner. Mm. P.S. When you finish playing tennis, let's get you into federal parliament. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) You're in parliament, Darren. Maybe you could demonstrate some humbleness. What else is there? Yeah. Respect. Yep. And determination. I think oh, Ash Barty is. I think Ash Barty is great. But the last Same. thing that entered my mind was that she should become a politician. Nor would it even be attractive to her. I'd say. Well, maybe yeah. we should get um, uh, what's her name, the mm. the the Grand Slam winner, um, Rafa. No, no, no. no. Uh, from the sixties, got a oh. Margaret Court. Yeah, well, we'll yeah. Get, her, get her into Parliament. Yeah, well, we've already got John Alexander. Exactly. So John Alexander was a champion tennis player. Didn't make him a champion politician. No. He, he's, actually, he's actually really angry because he, he was on a committee that was looking at very fast trains and basically thought, well, this is a good idea and has discovered he's got absolutely nowhere with his party in relation to the one policy that he ended up thinking was a good one and that's the reason why he wants to leave and he's sort of, um, suddenly woken up that maybe the party he's part of isn't so crash hot. So, uh, um, yeah, oh, please, celebrity um, politicians. It's bad enough. Like we can do without that. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, uh, Radzi um, makes a point in the chat room. Um, uh, has there been any thought, this is about Grace Tane, that she was genuinely traumatised being near him? Uh, good point. Like, Possibly. Yeah, genuinely. Uh, it's quite possible. Most of us right. might be. Mm. That's right. I mean, it'd be hard not to show your feelings with a guy like that. All right. Um, let me see. So that was uh, Grace Tang. City Point Christian College is a, uh, a college in Queensland that's come t- uh, out in the news in the last week or so because they've asked parents to sign a contract prior to the start of the new school year. And uh, in it, it's got this acknowledgement of what the beliefs are of Centrepoint Christian College. And they say there, we believe that any form of sexual immorality, including but not limited to adultery, fornication, homosexual acts, bisexual acts, bestiality, incest, pedophilia and pornography, is sinful. equivalent. Yes, is sinful and offensive to God and is destructive to human relationships and society. So they're just lumped in adultery, fornication, homosexual acts, bisexual acts with bestiality, incest, paedophilia and pornography. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they've put that in as part of a contract with parents and there's been an uproar about it and people saying, uh, oh, they've also said that they're only going to recognise the gender of students based on their birth certificate. Uh, that's the only gender they're going to recognise. And and people are just shocked. What do they think is happening out there already all the time? Like we've got a government that is passing a law or trying to pass a law that basically says if your school has an ethos, then 
it can just do whatever the hell it likes in terms of enrolling and hiring and firing, provided it is doing so um, in furtherance of its ethos. So these guys have simply laid it out so that when the law is passed, they'll be able to say, we told you what our ethos is, and now all you gay kids piss off. Like, mm -hmm. it's just what did they think was going to happen is happening. No, no, no. They're not going to kick out the gay kids. Yeah. They're just going to no. bully them. Yes. Yeah. Given half a chance, they'll kick them out. So, and, you know, what are they doing there anyway? You've got, oh, I guess parents, parents shouldn't, oh, parents may not know their kid's gay, but. Um, yeah, and, and also uh, parents may have abhorrent attitudes to their kids being gay. Yes. Just because the parents are religious doesn't mean that the kids mm. need that in their life. Yes. So, um, so anyway, that's City Point. That's created an uproar in Queensland. And um, the shovel had a wonderful article. Yes. Um, they said um, parents have responded to a request from City Point Christian College about signing this enrolment contract by asking the school to first guarantee that their children won't be sexually assaulted by the school staff. Uh, the school is yet to respond, but some experts say the demands are impractical. I'm afraid this so-called contract for parents is unworkable, one religious commentator said. Um, uh, goes on. Anyway, that's the, uh, 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 the classic paragraph is, when I sign yeah. my kids up to, to go to school, I expect to get information about what they'll be learning in maths or what sports are available. But instead I get a four-page contract about adultery, fornication, homosexual acts, bisexual acts, bestiality, incest, pedophilia, and pornography. What the fuck are these people doing at their staff meetings? <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sums it up, really. Yeah, that is true. They're obsessed with the bedroom, these people. Oh, um, there was also, I think the ABC noted, no, sorry, there's a petition going around that yes. said they got $14 million in federal funding last year. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah, of course. Yep. It's been this, and this is nonsense has been going on for years. Yep. All right. Um, so isn't it perfect that it happens now because it's actually some outrage? It's, it's brilliant timing. Yeah. Because yeah. people people will see we'll the effect of the act. actually attention now. That's right. Mm. And good on a group who stood outside and uh, sort of a gay support group and um, – stood outside the school and sort of as a support group, so in a protest, so good on them. Um, all right. Uh, this is all just going to continue this sort of nonsense though, isn't it? Because we've mentioned a thousand times on this podcast, dear listener, about the takeover of the Liberal Party by the evangelical Christian churches who are just rabidly motivated and will not stop until they've taken it over. They've, they've seen the example in America and they are just following the same playbook. And we've seen it in Western Australia, Queensland, South Australia. The latest um, hotspot is in New South Wales. And essentially um, last week a prominent member of Liberal's right faction, Tim James, snared the safe New South Wales seat of Willoughby, replacing the former Liberal Premier Gladys Berejiklian who was a leading moderate. Um, no one saw it coming. The lower North Shore is a moderate stronghold within the party and the popular uh, former Willoughby Council Mayor, Gail Giles Gidney, a moderate with a high local profile, was seen as the front runner. Giles Gidney had the endorsement of Berejiklian 
and a power broker Zimmerman. And but at the end of a three-hour pre-selection meeting attended by more than a hundred members of the local branch, the moderates were left shell-shocked. The new Warringah rules for choosing a candidate had delivered an unexpected result. And um, got in this guy who's a um, a hardline right winger, and um, just goes on. Let me find it here. Um, the new rules for pre-selecting candidates have provided an avenue for increased influence, and there are signs that the right operatives are active. Quote, the right are taking the car out for a spin to see what's possible, said one factional player. So, um, so Tony Abbott's original rules for establishing branch member plebiscites to choose candidates were substantially modified before being adopted. Um, they were worried about branch stacking by Christians, I think. Safeguards against branch stacking, such as being a member for two years and monthly limits on new member sign-ups sign were included, and a quarter of the vote was allocated to the state executive. Um, but, you know, what's happened here, according to this article, is that the moderates have underestimated the right. So, you know, what they've done is they've put in a rule saying we've well, got to be a member for two years. Well, these hardline Christian evangelicals go, fine, we'll sign up and we'll vote in two years' time. And they say there's monthly limits on new members. That's fine. We'll just dribble our parishioners in monthly according to the rules. These guys play the long game. This is what religion is all about. It is a long game. And they've simply made it now harder for other groups to work because nobody plays a longer, harder game than these nutbag Christian groups. So they've taken their time, they've filled up the branch with their members and they've got their pre-selection and they'll just continue to do it around the place. I don't know what they were thinking if they thought this would stop them because, to me, um, the harder you make it, they would go, well, the better it is because we like hurdles because we'll, we've got people who'll jump any hurdle <laughs> and you guys don't, you moderates. Well, that was the argument from... Um Oh, um, game of mates. <clears throat> Same when you make the planning application process harder to stop corruption. All you do is make it easier for the people who are, have the deep pockets and have their mates already in the seats of power, and yep. you make it harder and harder for the new entrants. So yes. effectively, you create a a very closed system. Yep, you need a real organisation to to get through it mm -hmm. and. Um, yeah, so the sort of, um, oh, I don't know, um, a popular candidate who sort of bursts onto the scene just won't be able to get the numbers because uh, the system will grind them down. They'll need to have been doing it for years. So it works perfectly into the hands of, of these guys and that's what's happening in New South Wales. Watch it happen around the rest of the country. Mm. Mm. Okay. How might that alienate the electorate? which is mostly centrist. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. You would think so eventually. Yeah, you would, wouldn't you? Because they'll just get crazier and oh, crazier candidates. Mm -hmm. Only if they're being obvious about it. If they're being yeah. sly about it, then no. Mm. Mm. Yep. So th this is part of the problem with our democracy is that 
um, small, highly organised groups uh, taking over one of our two major political parties. Yes. Well, the, the other, other one haven't already been taken over by the union movement, but in any event. My drive up to Rocky, um, mm. all the way up were Palmerston United mm. Party posters. Mm. I, I must have yes. seen, I reckon, 50 on the way up to Rockhampton. Mm. Just yeah, all the way up the Sunshine Coast, uh, yep. complaining about lockdowns, which haven't been a thing for God knows how long. And then freedom, 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 we're the party of freedom. Yes. He is spending big. Yes. And he's, he's not going to win any seats. No. No. The question is last time, though, did he get enough, you know, he only got, what, 1% or 2% or something, but possibly was that enough to, arguably it was enough to help sway the result. I think so. I think that's yeah. his aim. Yes. Yeah. So, uh how anybody could be fooled by that guy? Well, 1,500 people must have been. Um, to sign up as... Yeah, um, to, to become yeah. a party. Right, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's Clive Palmer. Um, he's another one, though, who's been cagey on whether he's had the injection vaccine. Of the vaccine. Yes. And he, well, says he's, he's, he says he's not in bad shape. Be. Yeah. Has, has he lost any weight? No. Okay. Well, then I reckon he's yeah. in the high risk group, isn't he? Um, exactly. You how old so. is he? Yeah. So, um, just but playing up to that anti-vax movement. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, approvals and statistics here. Let's see. Let's just share some screens. I'll just get rid of that. Um, okay. First up, blue line at the top, um, approval of Scott Morrison, red line at the bottom, disapproval. So his approval rating has gone down, but it's still around the same mark that it was three years ago. Not, doesn't look that bad. So, you know, it's been lots of talk with polls about what's happened to him, but uh, uh, next one... Um, who do you think would make the better Prime Minister? The blue line at the top, Scott Morrison. The red line at the bottom, Anthony Albanese. I, I see photos of Albanese and I'm, who the hell's that? He's lost he, a lot of weight. Is that what yeah. you mean? No, no, no. It's just oh. he's nev I never see him oh. in any media. Right. I see Scott Morrison's smarmy smile all over the place. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So... Um, well, I got so, yeah. my copy of the monthly today. Oh, yes. And there he is. Oh, okay. Smart so a whole suit. article. Yeah. He claims he's done more interviews than Scott Morrison. Yes. So I don't know Don't know where you've been, Joe, because he's been everywhere. And he I'll has tell you been. What, he was at the press club <laughs> last week. Sorry. He was, yes. And he, anyway, the article says he needs 1.4 million people to vote Labor who didn't vote Labor at the last election. That's it. Yep. Yeah, you would think you'd get that just in young people who have become eligible to vote. You'd think you'd nearly get there. With Some just, of them, just, I think, just vote how their parents tell them to. Yeah, yeah. So that's true. Uh, and final one there: um, two party preferred, and uh, and you'll see that. 
The two point preferred vote, now that's the one that has actually moved a lot in the last uh, few weeks. So realistically, the previous graphs I showed with popularity, not much change to say three years ago, but this one's changed a lot, two party preferred. So uh, 7% swing and if that was replicated at the election, it would be a very solid win to Labor Party and that that's the one that's changed a lot is that two party preferred but i don't know i think my gut tells me people just vote according to the leaders these days mm. so uh yeah not sure on that one all right uh, very so good that's... article about him anyway okay I that was the best the best sell i think getting mm-hmm. someone else to sell him is mm-hmm. And you get, a phys- you get a physical copy of the monthly. You yeah, I asked it for Christmas because I wanted something print. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that was your Christmas present. Very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a a print copy of the monthly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. All right. Um, now, last episode, two weeks ago, I I joked that I'd figured out the Morrison government, that it was a satirical performance, not unlike um, uh, that sort of Hitler thing, uh, springtime for Hitler or whatever it was called. Um, the and literally, yes, literally the next day Scott Morrison asked the states to allow children to, vote, to drive forklifts as a means <laughs> yes. of of overcoming staff shortages in supply chains. Have you guys ever driven a forklift? Nope. Nope. But there are a lot of injuries related to that. Correct. You've only got to hang around YouTube disaster videos for five minutes and you're bound to see two or three forklift ones. (laughs) Like they are unbelievably dangerous in a warehouse, nudging Mm. a pallet rack or just tipping stuff over like it's it's way more dangerous i think than driving a car because of just the nature of warehouses and they're just uncontrolled environments compared to to you know a road and the idea oh let's fast track kids driving forklifts that i mean this is what they've spent some time thinking about prior to a meeting with the premiers and didn't provide any material in advance and just sprung an ottoman a meeting How's this for an idea, guys? And we'll get 16-year-olds to drive forklifts. That'll help with our – goodness me. Mm. They, so, yeah, it's a, a satirical performance. They're really – they're laying it on too thick. What did you <laughs> I think see we're going to see through this. You not see the comments afterwards with the how mm. dare you lay into this, you know, uh, all the shortages are the fault of uh, probably Labor. Mm. Well, I'm going to – I've got a um, – there's one here by uh, – there was an article by, um, in the Herald Sun, Caleb Bond. I've got a picture of him there on the screen. I mean, clearly a face you can trust. And he <laughs> said... Um, he, he's, he's a 12-year-old with a beard, isn't he? That's right. <laughs> he, does he doesn't I look old he, enough to, to run a forklift. I was going to say, he, he just wants to play with the forklifts, doesn't he? You know, it's not it's it's not charitable to be picking on somebody's looks, but his, his, no. what he said was his article was the hatred of Scott Morrison has become so ridiculous 
but even sensible ideas such as teenagers getting forklift licences are being shot down. Yeah, so... Um, Maybe they could go up into the ceilings and put um, some insulation in. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, Did you hear that Ron Williams is running for Senate in Queensland? I did. Reason. Yeah. Did did you hear that at all, Shani? Do you know who Ron Williams is? I don't. No. Okay. So he's the guy. Why do bees go to heaven? Sorry? Just just YouTube. Why do bees go to heaven? It's a song he's done. Oh. Ron Williams. He's, he's right. a musician. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Right. The chat's disappeared again, Joe. Is it? Because oh, I shared the screen. I, oh, no? Yeah, I turned it off when you oh, shared thank the you. screen. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, so Ron Williams, he's the guy who did the high court challenges to the chaplaincy scheme when he was basically saying the government didn't have the authority to spend money on chaplaincy. and. Um, had a couple of high court cases on that, and eventually they they passed legislation in a particular way to get around that. So, um, so yeah, he um, is a very strong advocate for secular stuff, and I think he's oh, if he wasn't president of the Humanists in Queensland, he was something similar. I think at one point, and maybe still is. So, um, so he's running in the Senate in Queensland, and. Um, now, there's a guy who will definitely mm. act in terms of trying to change laws to make Australia more secular. So if secularism is your priority, Ron Williams is definitely your candidate. Um, uh, first and foremost, that's what he'll be doing. And uh, so um, he'll be part of the reason ticket for the Senate in Queensland. So good on you, Ron, for running that might reach out and try and get him to chat on this podcast at some stage. So Good idea. Yes. Um, as Queensland's two um, secular litigators, <laughs> we, could have a lot right. to, we could have a lot to talk about. <laughs> uh, Roman in the chat room says, we weren't far wrong about Caleb Bond. He's 21. There we go. Yeah. I'm, sure wow. that's, I'm sure that's a palindrome. It's the wrong way around. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so anyway... Um, yeah, Ron Williams in the Senate and um, got Clive Ra- Palmer running for the Senate and um, and we've also got Amanda Stoker and, and Campbell Newman. So it's a circus in Queensland Senate. Yeah. All right. Can do, Campbell. Yeah. Uh, last week um, Paul is one of our um, – Paul Vapor, he contributes and sends stuff to me at different times and he uh, wrote me an email talking about our last episode and he said, so here's my question for you. What's your view on how we should get property prices back under control? How would we actually go about stopping this property bubble and maybe reversing or whatever? So here's the problem. Uh, You know, I could easily pop the bubble but – now there's so many people who are committed to these big mortgages and it'd be unfair to overnight change a system that then just throws them into bankruptcy. So, you know, now we're stuck where essentially we need policies that will basically hold property at, their, at its current price for the next 15 or 20 years to try and bring things back to normal because... We really can't, in all honesty to those people, 
hit them with things that are going to um, to reverse prices by thirty or forty percent, you know, intentionally by government means. So, you know, back in the nineties, property was flat for ten years. My wife and I had a property, and uh, I can remember we owned it for like six or seven years and barely got our money back on it. Like it's supposed to happen that way, and it used mm-hmm. to happen that way. So. If people were to think, oh, that would be shocking to keep property prices stable for 15 years, um, no, it wouldn't. So how would you do it? Dead easy, all dead easy. Uh, number one, phase out negative gearing on residential property. Instantly oh. reduces demand. Yep. Uh, another one, increase land tax on investment properties. Like that's what happens overseas. People pay a lot of land tax on property. So it's a disincentive to own property. Um, Third one, tell banks they can't rely on residential home equity to lend on investment properties. You can pass a law like that. Uh, Fourth one, delete capital gains tax concessions. So at the moment, if you make a million dollars from buying and selling a house as a capital gain, you only pay tax on half of that. Meanwhile, if you'd sweated for 20 years flipping hamburgers and made a million dollars, you pay tax on the full amount. So get rid of that capital gains tax concession and you could even provide some public housing. So with all of those things, the trick would be to phase them in. So negative gearing on residential property, you would just over a 10-year period, you would say next year you can only claim 90%, the following year only 80%, the following year only 70%. People would see the writing on the wall and start exiting from um, investment property over time. So that would be what would be done and you'd only have to just look at overseas experiences and see what's what they've got over there and just copy them. Um, I was listening to a podcast with Alan Kohler, you know, Alan Kohler, ABC mm-hmm. economist, yep, and he was talking to another economist called Michael Hudson whose book I am reading at the moment, or I finished reading, this is really good, um, Super imperialism, uh, the economic strategy of the American empire. It's only been uh, 460 odd pages of heavy economics, but really good. Anyway, Alan Kohler was talking to him, and as part of that, uh, talking about Australian property prices. And Alan Kohler looked at a house in Sydney that was X number of kilometres from the CBD and was worth $1.5 million. And then he looked for a similar house the same number of kilometres from the CBD of New York and the house was half the price. Mm. This this is what's going on in the rest of the world. We don't hear these stories often enough. So, I mean, you know, I grew up on Jersey, which, you know, Mm. um, offshore finance, uh, Mm. lots of people escaping the UK tax and... um, Interest paid on your mortgage of your primary residence, so the place you lived, yep. was tax deductible. On yep. investment properties, it was not tax deductible. There you go. Yep. So it was All encouraging. Sort of it was encouraging um, people to own their own homes. Yep. 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 That's the sort of thing that we need. Yeah. Mm. But I, I was shocked when I moved over to mm. find out that not only was I not going to get tax relief on my mortgage, mm. but that if I owned an investment property, I'd get tax relief on that. 
Right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Anyway, uh, also from Paul, um, what else did he say here? Um, so I was talking about Bill Shorten not being able to sell um, the uh, the story of mm-hmm. what he was wanting to do. They weren't selling enough. And um, Paul's taken me to task and said, this completely ignores the Murdoch media and Scotty from marketing going all out on attacking Labor on everything. Bill Shorten wants to ruin your weekend. Labor will tax you to death. Uh, Scotty came out with his outright lies and Murdoch Press were happy to repeat and amplify them in a non-stop campaign of fear and scare about anything Labor even suggested. The details get lost in the hype and the scare and we've seen with so many campaigns from Brexit to this, the easy lie is much more attractive than the complicated truth. You can't blame Labor for that. Good point, Paul. I mean, that is true. It is difficult to battle the Murdoch Press. I still think they could have spent a lot more time with ABC. They should have been saying to the ABC, we want to come on to the 7.30 report every night. And if if the uh, Labor, if the Liberals don't want to come on, then too bad. Let us on. We want to tell our story. I, I, think, yeah. I think they could have worked harder in some other areas. I've, I've noticed that the modern media is all about the soundbite mm. and I know that, Joe Rogan's received a lot of press recently, but yeah, one of the big reasons for his success was it was a two and a half hour interview, right? And and he was knocking five of those out a week. Yeah, uh, it was incredible. And rather than a thirty second snippet where you get no detail, people do want to sit down and listen to long form interviews, and yes. the modern media just isn't willing to spend that time. Yes. And I'm sure if he'd have wanted, if he'd have sat down and done a long form interview with some podcast of some sort, like Friendly Geordies or somebody like that, um, you know, gets a chance to talk about it. So, so look, it is true to an extent. Paul is a valid argument. I still think they could have done more. Um, guys like Hawk and Keating sold a vision. Whitlam sold a vision. Mm. So anyway, but then again, Whitlam did have. The paper's more or less on his side the first time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's true. All right. Um, and what else did he say here? Um, oh, and he's also said, um, and the thing that really shows me the power that Morrison and Murdoch have on you is just how little you report on what Albanese is actually out there doing. He's recently announced 200 million per year for disaster prevention and resilience in areas hit badly by cyclones and climate change. Did you mention this big new announcement? Not at all. If you just reducing it down to a personality contest between Morrison and Albanese, you're just playing into the conservative media's hands. I don't know, Paul, I just can't get excited about a $200 million disaster prevention payment. Like, this is just, every government gets money to spend on stuff. It's not, it's not changing a system. It's not a systematic change of any sort. What um, I'm waiting for is the big announcement with... All right, we have so much invested in carbon uh, or fossil fuels. Mm. This is our package. This is how we're going to move from fossil fuels. This is what we're going to do with the miners. This is how we're going to retrain them. These are the industries that we're going to introduce into the regions that are going to pick up the slack from when we lose these mining jobs. 
because mm. at the moment we are fetishizing coal mm. uh, and coal seam gas because it's producing it's putting money into the regions and the regions yeah i reckon the regions will cost labor the election mm. last year last time mm. Mm. So, so all that money that was announced for the reef it seems by the morrison government now x billion seems a huge proportion of it is actually going to farmers yes in, in order to try and prevent runoff um, so it's not actually going directly to the reef yeah. as such so yeah and you yeah, could um, you could you could win an election on his federal ICAC policy elbows because it's retrospective, yeah. and yeah. you could make a case around um, how countries that are resource rich, if they don't deal with their corruption, they can end up in poverty. There mm -hmm. would be a case to make there. There'd be a whole range of ways you could just stick with that one policy. So we've got mm -hmm. to clean up the corruption works for so many other like subgroups, corruption, 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 and really mm. works. Mm. And yeah. may I just read you the last paragraph of this thing about Albo? Oh, yeah, in the I monthly. Yeah. In your hard copy edition of the monthly. <laughs> That's right. It's written by Nick Bryant. Yes. Um, so over the past 40 years, Australia has lived through the reform era under Hawke, Keating and Howard and the revenge era of Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Gillard, Rudd, Abbott and Turnbull. A Morrison victory would prolong what could easily become a regression era, a further national drift and democratic decline. So perhaps the best the country can hope for right now is renewal, not revolution. It wouldn't be inspiring. It wouldn't be poetic. It might not even be clearly articulated, but maybe it's time for a mechanic rather than a messiah. And maybe Albo is the repairman for the job. That's good. That's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good argument. That is walk like, before you run. Yeah. Because I was good. bashing him the other week. Yeah. Wasn't I? That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a good argument. I mean, yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, one of the problems is that the right wing have got all of these think tanks and other groups who, who can make outrageous claims and shift the Overton window so that then the government feels sort of, oh, well, we're not going as far as that, but we're just going a little bit of the way, you know, we're not going to that outside edge of craziness. And yeah. there isn't the same sort of activity on the left with think tanks and other groups who can shift the Overton window to the left to some point. So, um, yeah, that's, and of course... How do you get think tanks and things? Because you need lots of money because mm. and then the left doesn't have the money to support the think tanks. So that is part of the problem. Mm. Sorry, Joe, you were going to say something or not? I no? was going to say um, I remember seeing articles from the Australian Socialist or something. Mm. I, I've seen some very, very left-wing, but they're minor mm. voices. They're not yeah. amplified at all. Don't get any traction. Yeah. No. Yeah. Right. Um uh, Aboriginal flag. Did you see what happened with that? Mm. So it was previously privately owned by the yeah. designer, which was causing enormous problems for replicating the uh, Aboriginal flags. So in the week, the government actually did a good thing, I believe. Yes. It somehow acquired the rights to the Aboriginal flag and has basically made it available for use guess along the similar lines that the Australian flag is 
um, allowed. So that to me was well done. You've done something. <laughs> That's right. And $20 million, probably not a bad. In the scheme of things. <laughs> the way things have been going. Uh, it's just dollars. We're not we pr- businessmen, so. And we just print. We can just print money. We're so that's all right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Bronman too says she's amazed. So um, Must I think have come some from people, the civil servants rather than the government, surely. Yeah. Um, look, that's probably a thing that's taken quite a while to work on. It, and but anyway, full marks to it wouldn't have taken more than seven years, presumably. So mm. they've done it anyway. So that seems to be a good thing. So mm. it was quite an unusual situation before, and that's been cleared up. So that can be done. All right. Um, private school cricketers. So I thought this was interesting. Public school boys, come on. Yes. So in the UK they're called public, which is the equivalent oh. of our private. Why is that, Joe? Why do they call a private so, so institution public? Historically, schools were either based on catchment, what your father's profession was, or what denomination were you were. And public schools were open to the public. As long as you could pay, they were public. So they tended to be boarding school and they were non-regional. So they were very much the... Um, public in that they'd take anyone from the public who could afford it. Basically. Right, and, and, and there's so, other nasty restrictions of denomination and occupation and religion could be dealt Okay, and, right. and to be a public school, your your headmaster or headmistress needs to be a member of the headmaster and headmistresses conference. Right. So there's 60-something schools in the UK and there are yep. 30-something internationally. Yeah. Okay. So when I use the word private here, I mean it in the sense that we in Australia normally think of private schools. So... Um, and from The Guardian, we looked through all the specialist batters that debuted for England in tests since 2011, and we found out that 95% of them have been white and 77% of them have come from private schools. And um, so it seems that the uh, England's team's top order of batsmen is more elitist uh, than what you'd find in the UK House of Lords, So, which might explain why they're doing so poorly because they've missed out on a lot of talent by just... <laughs> limiting themselves to such a small group. Sport is very class divided. Yes. Um, yes. Even in so, Australia. But but certainly in the UK, um, mm. public schools or private schools would play cricket and rugby. Yep. And the state schools would play football or soccer. Mm. Um, so there are certain sports that you'd expect um, – to be a lot more private school kids. Yeah. Dear listener, if you're ever, you know, at a barbecue with a South African uh, <laughs> who will invariably love their rugby and, you know, they've possibly come to Australia in the last 10 or 15 years or whatever and uh, and just ask them, were they you say, were you surprised when you came to Australia to discover how low down the totem pole rugby is in Australia. And they go, yeah, I can't believe it. And um, I said, yeah, we've got, you know, AFL, we've got rugby league, we've got soccer, and then rugby union, rugby. And um, it's just played by a small collection of private schools and uh, it's really low down in terms of participation in the totem pole. And, and uh, South Africans are very surprised by 
by that how low it is. So anyway, um, so yeah, got to go to one of those schools if you want to be in the English uh, top order, it seems. And also on private schools from the Sydney Morning Herald, a major study of NAPLAN results over time found only a slight difference in scores between the three school sectors. And these differences disappeared once a student's family background was considered. So the research team from the University of New England looked at the NAPLAN results of 1,500 students in years three, five, seven, and nine, and found no difference in average achievement between the three school sectors in primary school, except that year five students in public schools performed slightly better in numeracy than those in Catholic schools. Um, in year seven and nine, students at independent schools were slightly ahead, but their apparent advantage disappeared after including socio-economic uh, status. Um, and, and that's an so, international finding because it was in yes. Freakonomics, the book. Right. And there's a bunch of other studies in this article that are referred to as well. Dear listener, if you are spending money sending your kids to a private school because you think they're going to get a better education, a better result, a better ATAR score or whatever, um, no, just because it's private does not make any difference. Now, you might choose between different schools um, because some do run better than others at various times, but just because it's a private school is absolutely no guarantee that it's going to be any better than the public school down the road and... Um, you're wasting your money. And if you think that your kid is going to join an elite cohort and get these amazing contacts, uh, I did an interview with John Gillespie years ago on this podcast and you can find that. And basically he said, you don't join a school and become part of the elite. You are already part of the elite and you join the school that the elites go to. And if you're working class... <laughs> and then join the elite school thinking that you'll join the elites. That's not how it works. You don't get in. So, um, so yes, you will find, for example, a large number of Supreme Court New South Wales judges come from a particular school or whatever, but that's not because of the education they're getting in that school. It's just that that's where all the legal fraternities send their kids. Mm. And, um, and if you are not in that legal fraternity and you send your kid to that school, thinking they'll be part of that. But that's not how it works. So save your money and get yourself an au pair or something. <laughs> I, I got myself a job purely on the strength of the school I went to. Right. You did? Yeah. And what was that? What do you mean? Oh, I, You'd poo-pooing what I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I went in for a holiday job uh, and right. the, the guy took the paperwork the application form yeah. came right. out and said, "Oh, I see you went to Victoria College. What house were you in?" Right. That right. was it. I got the job. Okay, all right. Well, and that, that's over. Yeah, yeah, UK. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've like, heard vicious in, rumors about mm. um, pilot selection being based on whether they're churchy boys or not. Can't substantiate it. <laughs> seriously doubt it. I mean, it's way too competitive in a lot of fields now, like in the law. Maybe now. Don't look at GPAs. How good are you? What did you get at school? Mm. Like, um, you know, and and now like the legal profession is now like 50%, getting close to 50% partners are female, you know, all that old school tie stuff. It's like 
um, it doesn't work that way. It might work a little bit in stockbroking. They were one of the last bastions, maybe in real estate, commercial real estate. <laughs> but um, uh, it's too competitive. They need smart, bright people and where you went to school, uh, secondary consideration, you know, way down the list. Um, mm. Right. Um, uh, let me just see. Uh, Shay, I saw this. Flight attendant entry-level wage in 1998. Did you see this one? Yeah. $27.38 per hour. 1998, $27.38. In 2020, entry-level flight attendant, $29.70. It's a $2.32 increase in 22 years. And thoughts on that, Shay? <laughs> Um, I had a lot of thoughts about that. So to give you some background, um, you might have also seen in the news that Qantas has taken an aggressive stance and um, took a um, agreement to the international um, cohort that paid them less and worked them harder. And so they said no to that agreement. And um, then Qantas claimed to move to uh, terminating the agreement and just putting them back on the award in the meantime to give mm -hmm. the company certainty during these turbulent times. Mm. So, um, hmm. Does it, does I it guess I've the already risked, I've already, so I immediately am dismissed with my workplace for speaking mm -hmm. to the media. Mm. But um, I just do probably need to talk about this anyway. <laughs> Careful. I don't want to be responsible for anything, Shay. Think so, about this. So, look, I'll put it in context. So I've been doing, like, lots and lots of digging because Qantas uh, have cried poor before and then we're quickly reporting record bonus, record profits and propping up the executives, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all very familiar and um, our union, particularly Flight Attendants Union, has always said that they're willing to negotiate to a standstill but they've never been willing to take real industrial action. Mm. And Qantas's latest move has forced the Secretary of the FAAA to basically find the guts to fight them because she's oh. in agreement that this has got to stop. 20 years of just no wage growth, you know. And look, um, there's a whole range of things. Like I don't really think um, flight attendants, I don't even think it's considered a profession or a career anymore, which is a shame because yep. it's a really, really good gig. And that's between having our conditions eroded, the casualization of the workforce, but also Richard Branson profiting from making flight attendants some sort of uh, dim sex symbol. Mm -hmm. as opposed to somebody's going to protect you if you find yourself in trouble on a plane. Mm. Aren't you glad you asked? So, <laughs> see, I'm, I, <laughs> so I'm was, getting was, to my point. So see, I, we're not yep. being taken seriously. We're not being paid appropriately. We're finally taking a stand. Mm. Um, and it was kind of upsetting to see that once Terry put that on Twitter that this sort of like debate about how much flight attendants were worth ensued and, just sort of just became another like distraction. Oh, what were people saying? I didn't look at the comments. You did, yeah. Don't look mixed at the bags. comments. Oh, yeah. mixed bags saying 
they're not worth 20. Just saying, oh, you know, um, getting paid $27 in 1998 was pretty good. Right. <laughs> and um, things like, you know, well, they're just hospitality and yep. what about aged care? Doesn't anybody care about aged care, you know, or um, maybe if they were in a better union, maybe if they were better supported by another union, that yep. wouldn't have happened to them. Yep. So just a whole lot of bullshit. But anyway, mm. what was my point? So conditions have been eroded. Flight attendants aren't really been taken seriously due to the pandemic. Um, attitudes towards flight attendants seem to have gotten worse. Mm. Um, conditions haven't improved. And um, certainly some of those flight attendants who said no to that agreement were also flying to re- rescue Australians when there wasn't a vaccine. Mm. So they were putting themselves potentially at serious risk. Mm. And um, since all of this blew up, I think it's probably the first tweet um, Terry's ever put on. Qantas has now agreed to mediate with with the union again. Mm -hmm. So it's not over. But I think um, after everything the crew have been through, like it was just it's just enough. I think. You know, we've had, yeah, we've had a lot. We've dealt with a lot in the past two years. And and we don't want to take away from aged care or other frontline workers who have done it tough too. But mm. I just think we really, we can't let a convenient thing like a pandemic let Alan Joyce get his way again. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure executive yeah. salaries didn't follow the same trajectory in terms of rate of <laughs> No, they didn't. No, mm. they didn't. Alan mm. Joyce is the highest paid CEO in aviation in the world, $11 million a year. Really? Yes. Wow. wow. Yep. There you go. There you go. So. All right. Well, we'll move on while you've still got a job. Just um, <laughs> just going back, um, Alison mentioned, uh, she said, I was given my first job as a solicitor in Brisbane in 1990 because I went to a state school in North Queensland. They didn't want a private schoolie. There you go. That's a good story. There you else. go. Yeah. Yep. Um, I got my first job as an article clerk and I reckon it was one of the things was I had worked at McDonald's with the lady who was sort of like the office manager at some point and she saw the resume come through and uh, said, oh, give this guy a go. He'll be all right. So, um so, yeah, I think that might have had a big thing to do with how I got in was through that sort of thing. Mm. Right. Um, yeah, just on property still, property prices, I saw this tweet which was someone living in their mum's basement used to be the butt of a joke, but the rental market is so insane that now it's like, damn, you've got a whole basement to yourself. That's sexy. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see the um, anti-work interview or not? Anti-work interview. Uh, oh, so, so there's a Reddit forum which was called Anti-Work and it was a very, very anarchist group originally that were out to abolish work and um, yeah. I, I don't know how they were going to make ends meet. Anyway, recently in America with everyone getting disaffected by having to work three jobs to make ends meet, there's been an influx of people who want a fair wage system mm-hmm. um and fox news got the main moderator from the anti-work group 
on to talk about this. And the uh, something like a million people were in the group. And this one person who is autistic, uh, hadn't dressed up for the interview, was swiveling around in their chair, wasn't making eye contact with the camera, is saying that they earn... They, they work 20 hours a week as a dog walker and really laziness is a virtue and um, yeah, basically playing into all of the biases that Fox have. And yeah. and the one million workers who are members of the group who wanted to advocate for, you know, we need to work three jobs to get a living wage and we really need to do something about America's slave economy. Right. Uh, were very upset. Right. That, 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 that this person who... I think was living at their parents' house and could afford to live on 20 hours a week of dog walking, yep. was standing up representing them when it wasn't at all what they thought their group was about. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, living at home in a, in a salubrious basement, no doubt. But, yep. but played beautifully <laughs> into the hands of Fox. Yep. Yeah. Um, I really like Alan McLeod. He talks a lot about uh, Venezuela and... South American politics, and there was this headline in Breitbart, which was Nicolas Maduro threatens to kill US troops if they invade Venezuela. Duh. It's a bit what, are shock, really? people in, what are you supposed to do if people invade your country? <laughs> wave, <laughs> wave them through? <laughs> well, it worked for Noriega. I don't know why it happened. Uh, just quickly, no jab, no heart transplant. 31-year-old man, I think this was in the US, um, no longer yes, eligible to receive a heart transplant at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital because he refuses to get vaccinated against COVID-19. DJ Ferguson was at the top of the transplant list, but under the hospital's policy, he is ineligible because he's unvaccinated. Ferguson's father says his son will not get the vaccine because it's against his basic principles and he doesn't believe in it. And the hospital released a statement regarding the situation saying, like many other transplant programs, um, COVID vaccine is one of several vaccines and lifestyle behaviours required for transplant candidates in order to receive, um, in order to create both the best chance for a successful operation and also the patient's survival after transplantation. Not surprising and, wow, you're a true believer, aren't you? You need a heart transplant and you say, nope. And meanwhile, it's totally sensible. I think the last time we discussed this, I mentioned my cousin was up for a kidney to meet mm. all these requirements. So he got mm. his kidney. And Sydney, he got his kidney and then he got COVID. But he got vaccinated before he got his kidney. Exactly. So right. now he has yep. his kidney and he gets to live. Yep. And yeah, the community I mean, has a kidney that's functioning. Yep. Uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, I'm on immunosuppressive drugs. The people who have had transplants are on much, much higher doses. Mm. Um, and effectively they have bugger all immune system. Mm. Um, so... Vaccines, once you're on those immunosuppressive drugs, are very unlikely to work. Doesn't mm. mean they won't, but yeah, the, the risk is high. Mm. So they want you to be fully vaccinated before you start taking those drugs. 
Another article, um, Kelly Slater. He's another one who's in it. Hasn't been vaccinated. Um, claims he knows more about being healthy than ninety nine percent of doctors. <laughs> so guess what? Uh, he's not going to be getting in. Presumably, presumably somewhere in the government, they've got a red flag at the passport control that says when Kelly Slater's name comes up, alarm bells, set them off so we can get this straight this time. Deny him. Not let him in. Please. <laughs> I mean, honestly, if that guy gets into the country and we have to go through the whole Jokovic fiasco again, I'm leaving the country. <laughs> right. Ukraine. Explain Ukraine. Yes, mm. please do. Yeah. So, dear listener, I had to hunt quite a bit to find the alternative story on the Ukraine. and. Um, sort of traditional story that we're being fed is that those nasty Russians are ganging up on those poor Ukrainians and it's up to the USA and the rest of the world to, to keep out the uh, freedom-loving Ukrainians who have only just recovered their democracy and uh, and that evil Putin, we've got to show him what for. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's the story. And so... I'm going to name the articles and who's written them and whatever, and this is just the alternative side of the story that you can consider when trying to think about what's happening in the Ukraine. Um, First of all, I just want to give you uh, some common ground. Um, This is a chart showing low vaccination rates around the world and... um, uh, Vaccinated, fully vaccinated, uh, Russia, 49%, USA, 66%, uh, next closest, Japan on 84%. So Russia and the USA do hold um, a similar value system when it comes to craziness with uh, vaccines. So, you know, that, that's a common ground between well, Russia and the USA. Um, Putin's media mm. machine is big in mm. both Russia and the USA. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> All right. Um so, oh, and now on the um, Facebook for the for this episode, I had a map, and I'm just going to bring that, find that map. Let me just find that, and I'll bring that up. So, uh, let's put that up because it's important to look at at the map and see where we are. So, if you're following the live stream or you're watching this on YouTube at some other point in time. Got a map of Ukraine down the bottom, Crimea, Crimea, and off to the right, um, the eastern sort of section of the Ukraine that's in dispute in particular at the moment. So, all right, first article: Calvin Hogue, former diplomat who's worked in Asia, Europe, and the Americas, as well as the UN. He's also worked at Australian National University and Macquarie Universities, and he's writing in the. Uh, John Menadue blog in an article that I'm quoting here. So he says it's a complex situation. Uh, The Ukrainian state in its present form is a relatively recent creation in historical terms and is still divided by religion, language, geography and identity. And the uh, internal problems are further complicated by the interests of European states and Russia and the US. In the west of the Ukraine are people of Polish origin and in the eastern Donbass region, 
Russian speakers predominate, around whom the current controversy swirls. Um, Russia is widely Russian is widely spoken throughout the Ukraine, even by nationalistic Ukrainian speakers, but not everyone speaks Ukrainian. So um, the current imbroglio involves around Ukrainian nationalists who want everyone to speak and use the Ukrainian language on all occasions. And on the other hand, those who prefer a more multicultural approach where Russian can be used, especially in the Donbass, that's that area off to the right, to the east, where it is the only language, Russian's the only language. Uh, in, the Donbass, some work, uh, in the Donbass, some would like to be part of Russia, but others are happy to remain Ukrainian so long as they can use the Russian language. Many probably don't care and just want to be left alone in peace and relative prosperity. Um, the revolt broke out after Kiev imposed the use of Ukrainian and then Russia supported the rebels. So we now have a clash between Ukrainian patriots supported by the government who want closer ties to Western Europe or in some cases membership of the EU and NATO and on the other hand, those who are pro-Russian, who want closer ties with Russia, and in some cases to be absorbed into Russia. So Russia is supporting the Donbass rebels, militarily and politically, and it's offered citizenship to people in the region. And the US supports the anti-Russian parties. Um, Western Europe offers rhetorical support, but would not want a divided, poor and corrupt country joining the EU or NATO. Um, Many Ukrainians hope that Western Europe will let them in, bring them out of poverty. So the question is, will Putin invade Ukraine and what will others do? And he says here that forces have been sent to the border um, and he says it's worth remembering the Cuban Missile Crisis. When the US threatened war, if the USSR placed nuclear missiles in Cuba and Russia backed down, only at the price of a secret agreement by the US to remove missiles from Turkey. So Russia still sees NATO as a threat, <coughs> quite legitimately. Um, so Russia believes they got a promise from the US that NATO would not move east as quid pro quo for accepting German unification. But now they see this promise being broken. So, you know, post-World War II, we had NATO... Uh, agreement, North Atlantic Treaty Organisations, with the US setting up their missiles, facing them towards Russia, and we had a zone in between that and Russia of sort of Eastern Bloc countries. It was like a buffer zone. And really what's been happening over the last 50 years is that buffer zone is being um, depleted as more and more of these countries are joining the EU and NATO. So... It's a dangerous situation to reduce a buffer zone. If this was happening to the Americans, they would be apoplectic with rage and fear. Um, but they don't, you know, they don't give Russia the same uh, opportunity to feel that way. So um, bottom line is Putin would like to absorb that Donbass region. Um, it's actually industrial. The rest of Ukraine is not. Um, he doesn't want to get into a war and most likely outcome is it'll just stay in the way it is at the moment. So that was uh, Kevin Hogue um, 
Tom Andrew Block. Right. Cameron Leckie, uh, he's an officer of the Australian Army for 24 years, agricultural engineer, currently PhD candidate, also writing the John Menendee blog. So he's saying that we're witnessing the end of Washington's unipolar moment, which is basically the, the strength of the USA as the numero uno um, big dog on the planet in terms of military affairs. So um, uh, he says... The coverage by our media shows we've become addicted to our own propaganda and that the mainstream media have become little more than narrative managers. Um, mm. So um, so he says, a reading of media articles which suggest that the history of the Ukraine crisis, the Ukraine crisis started with a Russian invasion of Crimea and the Donbass. For example, the ABC in an explainer article, described it thus, quote, In 2014, Russia annexed Crimea, Crimea after Ukraine ousted pro-Russian leader Viktor Yanukovych, an ally of Mr Putin's. So that's what the ABC summarised it as. In 2014, Russia annexed Crimea after the Ukraine ousted a pro-Russian leader who was an ally of Mr Putin's. So that's a gross simplification of what occurred. That leader was ousted in a violent coup, fleeing for his life. The coup was the culmination of escalating violent protests after that president, Yanukovych, decided to withdraw the Ukraine from a proposed agreement with the European Union, an agreement that would have harmed Ukraine's already struggling economy. So while many of the protesters were peaceful, a sizable proportion of the post-coup government and the protesters who brought it to power were fascists. The United States supported the coup. Um, and that's um, a number of sources will basically say that. Um, so there was also in 2010... Um, a pact was signed between the Ukraine and Russia about a naval base in Crimea and um, the um, allowing the Russians to stay in Crimea at this Black Sea naval base until 2042. The vehemently anti-Russian post-coup government, given the opportunity, would have cancelled this agreement for sure. Um, so, and they would have invited US and NATO forces onto the Crimean Peninsula. So that was just going to be unacceptable to Russia. So they annexed it as a direct result. So the original sin was the coup, but this has disappeared down the media memory hole, enabling a narrative of Russian aggression. Um, and there was a 2015 Minsk Agreement which was basically to sort out what was going to happen with this Donbass region as operating as a separate territory to the rest of the Ukraine. And the Ukrainian government agreed to that and hasn't done anything to facilitate that happening. So uh, two sides to the story there. Um, a bit more on this. Um, so the interesting part in that one is that the um, the IMF tried to get the Ukraine to agree to 
a host of changes to its economy in exchange for money. And it was the classic neoliberal takeover of the country that the IMF has been doing all around the world. And I'll get to the details later, but it was clearly going to be um, not in the UK's interests, uh, not in the Ukrainian interest to agree to that. So they basically had to um, knock it on the head and then turn to the Russians and say, well, what have you got for us? And the Russians offered them a deal and they said, okay, we'll go with you. And what happened? There was a coup that overthrew the Ukrainian government supported by the US. It's just a classic play that has been happening on this planet for the last 70 years where, um, where essentially if you don't accept the IMF proposals that you open up your economy to US interests, that you nationalise your, your, your commons and that you impose austerity programs, if you don't do that, then you'll be tossed out in a coup that'll be engineered by the Americans. Mm. That's exactly what happened. All happened in the Ukraine. So I'll get a bit more into the details on that. Um, uh, just the, the, the ability of the Americans to be so shameless about what they think their sphere of influence uh, encompasses in the world. So Joe Biden says everything south of Mexican border is America's front yard. I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is still in effect. The Monroe Doctrine was nobody touches Central and South America. That's our hemisphere. You stay out. It's just an open statement, the Monroe document, Doctrine. It's still in play. You know, they've got that spokesperson who talks at the White House and answers questions um, on behalf of the president, uh, Jen Spasky, P-S-A-K-I. She says, Eastern Europe is our eastern flank. Like, the Ukraine is America's eastern flank, according to the White House. As Caitlin Johnston says, the US government firmly believes its territorial borders extend to outer planets in our solar system. And as she says, um, anyone who criticises um, the annexation of Crimea uh, doesn't understand that the overwhelming supermajority of Crimeans prefer to be part of Russia. So there was a referendum held in 2014 which the Crimeans overwhelmingly voted to secede from the Ukraine and join the Russian Federation, and a similar vote in 1991 to secede from the Ukraine, which the Ukrainian government overruled. And the results have further been confirmed by Western pollsters in 2015 and 2019. So there's a huge amount of support in Crimea to be part of Russia. The other part is... Saying that the Crimea can go back to the Ukraine ignores the historical fact that it was only briefly under Ukrainian administration, having been put there by Khrushchev, who was a Ukrainian when he was head of the Soviet Union. So prior to Khrushchev, it was just an independent state as part of that Eastern Bloc. He was Ukrainian and said, oh, I'll play, make Crimea part of the Ukraine. Right. Another writer, Gregory Clark, began his career 
in Australia's Department of External Affairs with postings to Hong Kong and Moscow, resigned in 1964 to protest Australia's participation in the Vietnam War. Um, uh, lives in Japan. Um, he was stationed in the Australian Embassy in Moscow, 1963 to 65, and has visited Ukraine and Crimea several times. So he's the writer of this third article that we're going to talk about. People seem to have forgotten that in 2014 there was a civil war in the Ukraine which saw a coup-installed anti-Russian government using extremist far-right militias from western Ukraine to dominate the large Russian-speaking majority in central and eastern Ukraine, with 14,000 killed. The pro-Russian groupings only managed to survive by establishing holdouts in the far eastern provinces. From there, they negotiated a truce with the new anti-Russian government, which promised them a degree of autonomy. It was called the Minsk II Agreement of 2015. But the Kiev government reneged on the promise of autonomy, even though they'd signed on to it. Years since have seen sporadic fighting, failed attempts to revive that agreement. Um, It is the very existence of uh, that Donbass region and the Russian aid they receive, which is denounced as Russian aggression, even though the Minsk agreement allowing the existence of the provinces has UN Security Council approval. So that was him. Another guy, um, Bryce Green. Now, he is just a humble student at Indiana University, Bloomington. No special um, diplomatic qualifications at all but he's got some interesting information here. So the official line goes something like this. Russia is challenging NATO and the international rules-based order by threatening to invade Ukraine. And the Biden administration needed to deter Russia by providing more security guarantees for the Ukrainian government. The official account seizes on the 2014 annexation of Crimea as a starting point and as evidence of Putin's goals of rebuilding Russia's long-lost empire. Um, Russia's demand that NATO stop expanding is viewed as such an obviously impossible demand, it can only be understood as a pretext to invade Ukraine. Therefore, the US should send weapons and troops to Ukraine to guarantee its security. I mean, that's a fair assessment of the way this is being portrayed. Um, uh, to see here. So the backdrop to the coup, as I was talking about before, it was in response to um, the US through the IMF trying to open up Ukrainian markets to foreign investors. So uh, he says a key tool for this has been the International Monetary Fund, which leverages aid loans to push governments to adopt policies friendly to foreign investors. The IMF is funded by and represents Western financial capital and governments and has been reshaping economies around the world for decades, often with disastrous results. In the Ukraine, the IMF had long planned to implement a series of economic reforms to make the country more attractive to investors. These included cutting wage controls, meaning lowering wages, reforming and reducing health and education sectors, 
and cutting natural gas subsidies to Ukrainian citizens so that, uh, that made energy affordable to the general public. So the IMF wanted to lower wages, reduce health sectors, and cut, cut natural gas subsidies so energy would be more expensive. That's part of the program that they insist in order to provide loan to the Ukraine. So the Ukrainian president negotiated but then turned against these changes and ended the trade talks and started negotiations with Russia, which was, of course, a major snub. So um, there was a coup, as I've already mentioned, engineered by the US. After the coup, the new government quickly restarted that deal um, and after cutting heating subsidies in half, secured a $27 billion commitment from the IMF. The Americans were engaged in a destabilisation campaign against the Yanukovych government. The, the campaign culminated with the overthrow of the elected president in the Maidan Revolution. Um, so the US was fueling anti-government sentiment and they spent $5 billion promoting democracy in the Ukraine. And um, let's just see. And there was a leaked tape where the Americans were discuss, were caught discussing who they wanted to be as the new um, president in the Ukraine once their coup had been completed. So that's all on tape as well. Um, and, and that basically the opposition that they used to topple the government in the coup um, is a far-right and openly Nazi Group. Like there's some ugly characters in this Ukrainian government and um, they've been incorporated into the Ukrainian armed forces, uh, the same armed forces that the US has now given $2.5 billion to and um, plenty of human rights abuses and um, the Crimean bit I've already talked about. And essentially, we've talked about that. There's no way the US would tolerate what's happened to the Russia if it was happening on the US soil. And let me just get to, I've got a couple more that'll be in the show notes. I realise I'm going a bit over time and it's probably starting to tax you, but I just wanted to talk about um, the shamelessness of America. Um, uh, Secretary of State, this is on January 13, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said, quote, one country does not have the right to dictate the policies of another or to tell that country with whom it may associate. One country does not have the right to exert a sphere of influence. That notion should be relegated to the dustbin of history. Just so fucking shameless. Um, 
Let me just get on to, oh, the other thing, of course, is that there's a gas pipeline. The Russians are supplying Germany with gas via a pipeline. And the Americans, one of the reasons for stirring up this trouble is basically to say to the Germans, you can't trust Russia to supply gas through that pipeline. We could be at war with these guys. You know what you need to do? You need to buy your gas from us, good old US of A. Like, there's a clear incentive for the US to cause havoc with Russia so that they can cruel the deal where Russia is selling gas via a pipeline to Germany. And, uh, um, and yeah, and so Ted Cruz uh, and others are saying to the Germans, you need to buy your, Ameri- your gas via boats from us. Start getting your ports ready. Um, I'll just finish with Matt Taibbi. He's a very good writer and um, uh, I think he's actually Russian background, but he writes a whole bunch of things. And he's talking about America here. He's American. Um, Our plan with every foreign country that falls into our orbit orbit is the same. We ride in as saviours, throwing loans in all directions to settle debts, often debts owed to us, Then let it be known the country's affairs will henceforth be run through our embassy. Instead of devising individual policies, we go through identical processes of receiving groups of local politicians seeking our backing. We throw our weight behind the courtiers we like best. The winning supplicants are usually Western educated, speak great English, know how to flatter drunk diplomats and are fluent in neoliberal wonk speak. We back our men in Havana to the hilt, no matter how corrupt they may become in their rule, a process we called democracy promotion. The cycle always ends the same way. The white hat ally turns out to be either overmatched or a snake, usually the latter, and siphons off Western aid to himself and his cronies in huge quantities while smashing opposition by any means necessary. That brutality and corruption combined with efforts to implement our structural adjustment policies read austerity and the nationalisation of the denationalisation of natural resources inevitably results in loss of popular support and or the rise of opposition movements on the right, the left or both. Rising discontent in turn inspires further requests from the puppet for security aid, which we happily provide, since that ultimately is the whole point, selling weapons to foreigners to fill those Washington rice bowls. You'll soon hear it in the form of increased calls for defence spending amid the Ukrainian mess. Um, This is relevant to Russia and Ukraine because we've cycled through at least half the usual failure process with both countries. And um, uh, he says, in 2013, Ukraine was proceeding down a path of integration into the EU. Um, The president... uh, Yanukovych, always described in America as an outright puppet of Moscow, was actually a proponent of Euro integration. Um, And he cajoled and bullied anyone who pushed for Ukraine to have closer ties to Russia. Um, But um, Putin's tactics, including intense economic and military threats, pushed Yanukovych to back out of the EU deal and take instead an economic trade package with Russia. Um, yeah, talks about the US back crew, blah, 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 blah. There you go. 
that's a summary of really what's happening over there in the Ukraine. Um, it's just following the classic story of poor countries around the world. The US wants to buy its infrastructure, wants its companies to be able to operate, and if you don't allow them access, then um, your government will be overthrown in a coup. And sure, Russia are not nice guys and not good guys and all this, but they're just doing what, you know, powers do and you can hardly blame them for, particularly when you're looking at the ethnic makeup of the people in the Donbass region and the Crimea region as being very pro-Russian groups. So, um, so there you go. That's just a different painting of the picture of what's going on. Makes you wonder how the Ukraine got independence. Um, or why it got independence with the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I don't know. I suspect things were such a mess at the time and things were happening so quickly. Um, a lot of history that would normally take decades was crunched into a small amount of time, wasn't it? I don't know. Mm. So, you know, that whole breakup of the Soviet Union um, happened pretty quickly when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, if you're still in the chat room and listening, good on you for hanging around. <laughs> That's a bit of a diatribe, but, hey, you're not going to get it anywhere else. It's hard to find. So if you are a patron, you'll see all that in the show notes. If you're not, become a patron. You'll get access to it. Um, look on the website. And next week I am definitely talking about economics and super imperialism. So this is the idea, dear listener, that after the um, – First World War, the Allies and Germany owed America a huge amount of money, yep. which they couldn't possibly pay. And America should have forgiven, as creditors are often forced to, but they didn't, which led to the Depression, which led to the Weimar, Weimar Republic and all the rest of it, which led to the Second World War. And after the that. Second World War, yes, after the Second World War, there was more debt. This time they were uh, more clever and how they set up central banks and others in terms of, of repaying it. But uh, basically giving money to uh, the Allies and to Germany but on the condition that they spend the money with America. And then we had a period where America was this incredibly powerful creditor nation where it had all the money in the world and all the gold in the world and was basically forcing other countries to submit to allowing them into their markets. And they did. And then what happened was America got into the Korean and the Vietnam War wars and this huge surplus that they'd had got frittered away in war. Basically, they lost it all on war spending and became a, a internationally a debtor nation where now America owed money to the other countries. The interesting, really interesting thing is that after World War II, there was this really strong linkage between the US dollar and gold. And they were treated as the same because the US was so dominant. But when the US said, well, we've run out of gold because <laughs> we've spent it all on war, and guess what? We're just 
jumping off the gold standard. We can have our dollars, but we're not guaranteeing you that they are now connected to a an amount of gold. You're just going to have to take it as as paper money. And the rest of the world capitulated and and said yes. And and then that just snowballed where the US could just print money and buy whatever it wanted around the world and its companies could take this cheap, easy money at no interest that was maybe 1% or 2% and then go and buy businesses in Europe using this cheap money. And then the money got recycled back in US Treasuries. And that's what next week is about. <laughs> in a nutshell, it's a really, really interesting story and... Um, and I find it fascinating. So um, you might remember when I did the story with modern monetary theory with Stephen Hale and I said in that to him at one point, the whole US dollar thing, the free lunch that the US gets, you know, are you at all worried about that? You know, and he wasn't, he wasn't that concerned. He didn't see a big deal about it, but this Michael Hudson does. So, so I don't know how long it's going to go for. It's going to be a solo diatribe as I delve into super imperialism by Michael Hudson. That is definitely next week. And, you know uh, that the Second World War loans, the Lend-Lease, mm, mm. was only paid off by the UK in 2006. Yes, exactly. Yes. Yep. So that's all in there. Um, amazing stuff. Amazing um, where the US claims to be all about free markets, but in fact it's not. So anyway, we'll get into that next week. Thank you for listening. Um, good on you if you stayed in the chat room for all that. You're a true believer. Thanks, Shay. Thanks, Joe. You want to say goodbyes? Just go ahead. Thank you. Good night. And it's a good night from him. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone. And, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go 
it'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.